Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your hosts, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Ed, and I hope you are. I am. You know, we had some things come up. We're a little bit late in the week putting this together, but we're just as interested now as we would have been a couple of days ago. And we're so dedicated. We're doing this on Friday night. That's right. After dark, recording a podcast. That's right. Because we're there for our listeners. So one of the big stories this week I know you've followed has to do with this shooting by Alec Baldwin on a movie set. It's really, really tragic. And and so much had to go wrong in order to for this to happen. I mean, on several levels, but it is really uh, it's, it's it's just terrible. And you know, Alec Baldwin is frankly an ass, and I, I would not agree with him on on anything. Um, and and to some extent, you know, you're, you're a jerk to people for so long. It's almost like. Uh, the chickens are coming home to roost in some ways, but you know he's a victim, and, and and I hope he gets. I think he ought to be prosecuted based on what we've heard, and I hope he is, and I hope it's not a double standard. But he's got to live with this the rest of his life, you know. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. it's 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 terrible. Um, it, the uh, and you and I were just talking about this before we came on the air. The armorer has now issued a statement. Uh, first time. She's blaming the producers. I think they were trying to set her up to be the fall guy. She doesn't seem willing to do that. I don't blame her. But I'm reminded, or I was reminded of the Twilight Zone movie. What was that guy's name? Vic Morrow. Mm -hmm. And two kids. uh, They were filming a scene uh, about the Vietnam War and a helicopter crashed essentially they were trying to get on and it flipped over and and or semi flipped over and, and decapitated them the producer and maybe the director too uh, were criminally prosecuted for negligent homicide of some sort in that and then there was a movie with William Hurt back in the I think it was in the 80s um, they, they, there was a, a scene uh, where he is, I think he was dreaming about being on the railroad tracks uh, in a hospital bed as a train, maybe the train's coming, that kind of thing. And the production company went out on this trestle uh, to film this scene. They did not get permission from the federal government as they were required to do in order to film on the railroad. They're out there filming, and the train's there because of where they were on the trestle. They had to come. They had to run towards the train in order to get off the tracks before the before the train hit them. Uh, William Hurt just made it, uh, and there was I think it was a female crew member who did not, and uh, she was killed. and And some folks ended up uh, with like ten year sentences in California. Uh, state court they only served like a year but you know that those folks were certainly prosecuted so you know there's certainly precedent within the movie industry for holding decision makers in charge or in you know liable for for the the decisions they make that that start the chain of events that ends up in the in the deaths of 
of an employee. And the interesting thing to me about this case, Baldwin really has two two ways to be liable. One, he he's the trigger guy, right. and two, he's the He's the executive producer, so the buck stops stops with him in that regard. So he could be liable because he was uh, responsible for this entire project. That's right, and and you know the 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 way it is supposed to work um, is uh, the armor hands the weapon, armor checks the weapon, hands it to the assistant director who checks the weapon, and hands it to the uh, the, the actor or actress. I guess they're not actresses anymore, but as an actor, but but the 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 actor who's going to use it in the scene, who then is supposed to check the weapon, and then anyone on the set, from the lowest crew member to uh, whomever, has the ability to also stop things and check the weapon. Um, and I mean, you uh, know, that's if you take, I'm sure you've taken gun safety classes, and and there are always certain basic lessons about gun safety. One is that you treat every gun as loaded until you personally determine that it's unloaded. That's right. And if you walk away and leave it in a room and you come back, you check it again before you personally determine that that gun's not loaded. That's right. Also, you don't put a finger anywhere inside the trigger well until you want to fire. So and in you this don't case, point it at anything you don't want to kill. That's that's the third lesson there, I guess. But um, or the third rule. You know, in this case, basic rules of gun safety weren't followed. Uh, yeah, I think it's really kind of hard to understand on a movie set why you start mixing live rounds with blanks and dummy rounds in the first place. Yeah. But if you're going to, if you know they're there, someone needs to verify what is in that weapon. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be the person who's holding it. Right, because ultimately that person is responsible. Um, aside from whomever else may be responsible. You know, if if the if it's in your hands, it's on you. Uh, and you know, when someone hands you a weapon and they say it's unloaded, it's up to you to check uh, and make sure that it's unloaded and clear. If if they say it's weapon, it's I mean, it's it's a uh, uh, cold weapon. It's loaded. Uh, then then it's up to you to check and confirm that it is. And and you know, just because they say cold weapon or hot weapon doesn't make it so. When, in fact, the sheriff out there in New Mexico, he didn't want this to even be referred to as an accident. Yes. Yeah, because that. he said, you know, an accident something totally unavoidable. And in this case, you know, there were safety aspects which were ignored. Yeah. So, He's an you know, there fellow. Is, yeah, I mean, there are issues here about liability as well as gun safety. And, you know, I saw someone uh, put on Twitter yesterday that, you know, Alec Baldwin has been screeching his. Um, his diatribe against guns for for years now, um, but uh, the, the, this person's point was, you know, it's the gun people, the pro gun folks, who are concerned about gun safety and know how to practice gun safety, and it's these ignorant and, and I say that you know meaning they don't know about guns people who uh, are in this case anti gun who had no no. Uh, What's the word? No, uh, fail to exercise any sort of discretion or use any sort of common sense. Yeah, with I mean, we, are, to we don't know this, but you have to expect that if you had an NRA certified instructor who was serving as the armor or who, or who was on sit, set providing technical expertise, somebody who's familiar with guns and ammunition would have checked that weapon. Or would have said, hey, 
you need to check it. You know, don't don't do this. This is how it should work. And you know, the interesting thing about that particular pistol, the Colt Single Action Army, which is the you know the the standard cowboy pistol uh, that you see all the time. If it's a Colt, and this one is apparently an original Colt single army action from the 1870s or something, it's a six-shooter. But the hammer rests on the primer of the round in the chamber before it's cocked. And it's very easy to cause that hammer to strike the primer hard enough to discharge the weapon. So... The, the the story is that the gunfighters back in the old days would carry five and they would put a $10 bill, roll it up and put it in the chamber where the hammer rests when the gun's not cocked so that if they lost a gunfight, there would be money there to pay the pay for a funeral. Um, and, but they didn't have to worry about the, the weapon going off when it's you know in a holster or or whatever. And, and nobody's really said, uh, you know, was this loaded with six? Uh, and did that, the one happen to be the live round or was it more than, you know, and that'll all, I guess, come out in the wash um, as well. But uh, it's just, it's, it's hard to believe that that many mistakes could be made when there are, you know, after the uh, Brandon Lee uh, shooting death in Wilmington back in, Wilmington. Yeah, in the early 90s. They, uh, I guess it was the unions and the movie houses, came up with this whole protocol on how you do all this that's designed to prevent such. And, you know, the Brandon Lee situation is, is, is frankly more understandable than this one because there there was a, a squib round in the, in the barrel. Yeah, and explain what a squib round is. Well, it's it's a uh, the the weapon fired, but for whatever reason, the round didn't leave the barrel. So so the the the, the bullet, if you will, the um, the business. But it was also a blank, right? And right. Well, some, some the, wadding the, in it. The, the 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 round was not. It was in the barrel, and then they put blank uh, rounds in the chamber or magazine, but I think it was a revolver. So in the chamber. Uh, and there was enough force from the blank round and the wadding and so forth to to propel the bullet that was stuck in the in the barrel out and and into Brandon Lee and ultimately kill him. Um, and so, you know, getting back to what we were talking about originally with regard to checking the weapon, you also have to make sure it's clear. You know, you have to you have to eyeball the barrel uh, and make sure there's nothing in the barrel because um, there, there is wadding even in in blank rounds. Um, and you know, I've seen some. I've seen some discussion that you know there's no substitute for real guns, but you know it seems like Hollywood can do anything with special effects. Yeah, CGI's. Yeah, so it's really hard to understand why you have to have real guns and real weapons on a, on a set. Yeah, maybe that'll be rethought after this. Yeah, exactly. And you remember back in the '80s on that show Masquerade, John Eric Hexum. Who wasn't was the star of that show? Was playing around with a with a with a weapon. That were uh, the premise of the show was there were these female spies. He was the photographer who went with them, and they they would use their their cover as models and and a modeling agency and a photographer and so forth to get into places and then do work for the CIA or whomever. But he was playing around with a. Uh, with a weapon loaded with blanks on the set, put it to his head and pulled, or right, mm. right off his head, pulled the trigger, and the wadding killed him. 
No, I don't remember that show, and I remember that story. That's that's horrible. Uh-huh. You know, but, you know, but you know, it's funny how we talked about I don't know three or four incidents here, and just a moment ago I said, well, maybe things will change after this one. But you got to wonder how many times does something have to happen before it changes? Yeah. Um, and, and again, we're not talking about you know after every gun you know high profile shooting case, they talk about why isn't things change, and usually it's because. Any proposal, someone says, well, would it made a difference in this case? And the answer is almost invariably no. Uh, but, you know, here, 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 basic gun safety rules would have stopped the situation. from occurring. Yeah, just just one person exercising basic gun safety rules, be it the armor, assistant director or the actor or, or somebody off, you know, on set, just Joe Schmo saying, hey, wait a minute, let's let's double check that weapon would have saved that woman's life. So it's going to be an interesting case. You know, we'll follow this from a liability standpoint. Uh, and I haven't seen any uh, statements from Alec Baldwin yet. I, I'm sure he'll be at some point, either personally or through an agent or somebody, he'll release some type of statement. He, he released one, uh, I want to say over the weekend or maybe early Monday, that was, you know, sort of your garden variety. Uh, I'm so sorry. And uh, I've reached out to the family and, um, you know, I'm cooperating with law enforcement kind of thing. But after that, nothing. You know, the other thing that happened this week I want to get your take on was um, Merrick Garland appeared before both the House and the Senate Judicial Committees, and those were some pretty rough days for him. Yeah, they were. That was uh, pretty brutal. But, you know, part of the backstory of this has to do with this National School Board Association sending a letter to the Department of Justice, and then Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, issues this memo, which essentially... Uh, categorized a lot of parents who were appearing at school board meetings as domestic terrorists and brought the FBI in and the National Counterterrorism Center as resources for local law enforcement. Well, more more details have come out this week, and it seems like the NSBA, the National School Board Association, was actually communicating with someone in the White House for some period of time before they issued that letter. And then they issued the letter, the attorney general issues his memoranda, a memorandum, and now the school board association has said they regretted doing it and apologized. But the other piece of information came out is that someone for the school board association also got an assignment or a job from the White House a couple of days ago. And so it really raises a question if the White House wasn't looking for a reason that they could start cracking down on some of their political opponents. I think that's really the only inference that can be drawn. And I I was on the road on Wednesday and was able to listen to uh, most of the testimony in uh, of the attorney general before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And it was not a good day for uh, for the attorney general. I, I guess I was shocked at his intransigence. Yeah, and, and all I had to say was, "Okay, we screwed up." You know, I, I didn't mean what people have taken this to mean. I don't understand why they took it that way, but they have, and therefore, I'm telling people I'm going to change. I'm going to modify the memorandum or change it or withdraw it and come up with a new one, whatever. Yeah, and by the time it. he testified, the school board association had apologized for the letter sure. they sent to the White House. Pulled so the rug out from under him. Yeah, he had every opportunity to say, "Okay, well, we, we need to take a relook at this." And, and you know, I used to practice with a with a uh, a fellow who who who's, uh, would say, "If you say, if you look folks in the eye and you say, 
I screwed up. What else can folks say, you know? All he had to say was that you pop the balloon and it's probably over. He wouldn't say it. Um, and he came across as both exceedingly arrogant and timid. He, he His voice is not strong, and he did not, to me, seem particularly well prepared. And he... Uh, you could tell it's almost that he viewed uh, the Republican members of the committee with disdain. And, and it was just, it was a terrible, the optics were terrible, I thought. And I, I've i got to think that um, uh, perhaps uh, wiser political advisors within the Biden administration will, uh, within the next uh, six months or so, ease our friend Mr. Garland out of his position as Attorney General because I, I think he's been he he's allowed himself or he's neutered himself he hasn't just allowed himself to be neutered but when the school board association apologized for their letter you know he he, he just he lost all basis for his memorandum and he, he he just he dug it in his heels and he won't back away yeah he couldn't accept it but you know it also came off as. I thought he was not only unprepared for the hearings, but he seemed unprepared to have made the decision in the first place. He did not understand what had happened in Loudoun County, where uh, one of the prime incidents, which was mentioned in the school board letter, has been discredited, discredited significantly. And, you know, he even admitted, well, he didn't really do any research on this until he got the letter. And the letter was the primary research he did was reading it. So. You know, I think he was discredited from the beginning on this, and he just could not understand the vehemence that people were hitting him with. One of the things that I found interesting about his testimony, and I don't remember who asked him, I think it was uh, Mike Lee, but I, I don't know. They were asking him, uh, they were trying to figure out who in the White House had contacted him with regard to uh, doing this, this memorandum, and he he said no one, and you know the the way he phrased his his uh, answer was I haven't talked with anyone. So you wondered, well, did he email? Did did uh, was there written correspondence? Were there text messages? But aside from that, the question was asked: Who in his office uh, worked on the first draft? And f he kept avoiding the question. He didn't quite come out and say, well, no one. But then he recognizing that no one would buy that, he said, I'm not going to answer that question. And I'm not going to get into the inner workings of my office. And, and I was shocked because, you know, he has to testify as a as a senatorially confirmed uh, cabinet member. It's part of the oversight function of Congress. Right. And, and I would think that most of the people in his office who have uh, policy uh, portfolios would be as well. I don't know how he doesn't answer that question. Um, and it, because of the time that each senator was allotted, it, it really kind of died there. But uh, I, I found that to be very, very interesting. And, and then the, the other point that was made was four days elapsed from the time the school board letter was written until the memorandum was written, and two of those days were weekend days, uh, which, you know, 
strongly, it seems to me, suggests that this was in the works, as, as, you, as you said when we started on this topic, was in the works before the school board letter was written. Uh, yeah, and it's funny because at least a couple of congressmen and senators pointed out that, hey, we know it takes a while because we send requests to your office, and sometimes we're waiting weeks and or months. longer to get, yeah, or months to get any response back from your office. And yet yeah. you put this together and turned it around in four days. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, I just, I thought he looked terrible. Um, I, I thought Tom Cotton was probably not as effective as he could have been because he was so angry and so confrontational. I liked John Kennedy's approach better because he was more subtle and, you know, the old Southern drawl and so forth. And, and But, but I, I liked Cotton's remark. At the end of his first uh, first uh, questioning of of uh, the attorney general, where he said, "Thank God you're not on the Supreme Court." Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, generally speaking, though, I have to say that whenever I watch any of these hearings, and I, I really don't advise people to do it too often, but you look at the people who are asking questions, and you know the high percentage of lawyers there are, and you wonder why they can't control a witness and they can't ask questions any better than they do. Yeah. They know they only have five minutes, and they spend four and a half minutes talking and, right. and then try to ask a question at the end. So. That's just, you know, just the nature of being in Congress, I guess, but it's not very effective. No, no, it's not. And it's it's oftentimes just an opportunity for them to grandstand. And, and both sides are guilty of that. You know, it's not so much that they're asking a question as they're making a political speech. I thought the most effective was Ted Cruz asking if he got an ethics opinion yeah. because of the effect that this would have on a family member, namely his son-in-law, who has a significant stake in a business selling uh, curriculum to schools. And he refused to, and that was a simple question, yeah. yes or no. And he looked terrible when he refused to answer yeah. it. Um, and, and, you know, all he, again, all he had to say was, I didn't, I didn't consider it. Looking back, I probably should have. Next time I will. Uh, you know, but how hard is that? Yeah. What's next on the agenda? Well, you know, I wanted to mention this, this, uh, this survey that I saw earlier in the week. And, and, you know, I don't put a lot of stock when I see polls and polling data, but there was one that came out. It was a survey that was conducted by Axios and Ipsos. And I, there was just an element of this, which I thought was interesting. And it was the question was, and I've read some of the internal dynamics, uh, but what do you believe is most responsible for increased violent crime in the past year? Now, quite frankly, what people believe has caused violent crime, that tells you something about their perception, but it doesn't tell you the truth of anything. So, That's right. You know, it's, it's, it's of limited viability. But, you know, what was interesting is that 59 percent of Republican respondents said that they thought most responsible for increased violent crime was Democrats in Congress. And of Democrat respondents, 32 percent said they thought the most responsible thing was Republicans in Congress. So essentially, both sides pointing the finger at the opposite party. Yeah, it, it, and, and, and it's, it's the flip sides of the same coin. And, yeah. and of course, you're right. It, that doesn't have anything to do with the increase in violent crime. It could be that one particular party has uh, made bad policy choices and thus passed laws based on those. And that led to the increase in, in crime or a particular group of prosecutors for policy reasons did not 
correctly and appropriately prosecute crimes in their jurisdictions, and that created an incentive for criminals to act, and thus the, the crime rate rose. But to say the Democrats, I mean, or the Republicans is, is a, you know, it's a feeble-minded thinking, I think. Well, and to me, it's an indication of how far apart the two, two different, you know, groups of folks are. Yeah. Uh, you know, quite frankly speaking, Congress has done some things I would totally disagree with. And I might point to ill effects in society. But to say that all of a sudden that all the all the violent crime that has spiked last year, particularly murder rates, is because of one party or the other. Just yeah, probably not likely. Yeah. And, and Congress really shouldn't have much effect on the murder rates. I mean, that's a state and local issue. Because uh, it's a it's a state crime for the most part, so to say that Congress, which is a you know as we just talked about, it moves slowly, uh, the federal government in all its respects, uh, but certainly the Congress, um, you know, to say that they're responsible is is again specious. But I just found it interesting to yeah, see that it is. such different perceptions. You know, uh, like I say, you can only put so much stock in public polling, so. But it does tell you something about the respondents. It does, and you know that the whole thing about polling is is again uh, for you know political nerds, fascinating subject. And you know, polling had become much more scientific and much more accurate uh, over the years, and and then the cell phone came along. Yeah, exactly. It's destroyed polling, and it has. Um, and and I don't know how you you account for or change to account for the cell phones and get back to the accuracy rate that apparently the holsters don't either. Yeah. You know, and you know, and if any of our listeners are younger than, you know, they don't remember everybody had a phone in their house that was tied into the wall and you, your name and number appeared in a phone book. Back then, pollsters would call a certain number of people at random, and they would ask screening questions because they wanted so many Democrats, so many independents, so many Republicans. And then based on who they got in, they considered that a, a random survey of the population. Right. Well, there are no phone books anymore, and there are no landlines in, in houses. So how do you reach these people? And, and, you know, they do it online, but, you know, how does it work out? Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's not. Yeah, yeah. Which of course brings us to the you know we I know we hadn't really talked about this but the 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 governor's race in Virginia which is coming up on Tuesday the polls showed that Youngkin has now made like an eight point jump over the last few weeks so is it accurate I, don't know, I guess we find out by Wednesday or Thursday well I just I read something right before I, uh, we started tonight that said. Uh, it, it, we may not that it, it may take quite some time to count the votes, and of course, is that you, right? Yeah. Then you hear this. Well, you know that just means they're cooking the books. Um, is it yeah, a mail-in ballot issue there? I think so. Hmm. I think so. Um, you know the, the 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 interesting thing to me about that race is the when you when you look at those polls, it's it's not only the do you prefer Youngkin or McAuliffe, but it's whom do you prefer or who do you prefer on this issue? Who do you prefer on this issue? Who do you prefer on this issue? Uh, and and it's it's striking the, um, the, the discrepancies between what you would expect from Virginia, the Virginia electorate, and, and what the responses uh, were found to be in that poll. Um, Youngkin, I was watching Fox News before we started, and 
they had him at a, a an event uh, to this afternoon, and he his message to the crowd was polls don't win elections, you know, and he's he's continuing to uh, his average uh, is five events a day, uh, and um, you know the it seems to be that he's he's capturing to the extent the polls accurate a lot of these voters because he's out there in front of them. And they, I've seen some pictures of the recent McAuliffe um, events, even in, in in areas like Arlington and 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 so forth, that are heavily Democrat. And it's it's There's just nobody like, there. Yeah, it's just like the Biden events last fall. There's nobody there. If you take away the press, there's no one there. McAuliffe had had an event in Norfolk about, um, I guess it was about five this afternoon, maybe five thirty. He had left the stage. The people that were there were still there because they were waiting for the vice president to speak. Uh, It seems to me she is um, a true albatross around your neck from a political standpoint. Um, But yet he's embracing her. He he said, what, two weeks ago that the president's uh, approval and and performance was was killing him. Uh, And then this week he had... uh, I guess yesterday or day before he had the president with him, um, and it's like, well, which is it, Terry? I mean, do you want to do you want to stay away from Biden if you want to embrace him? Um, I can't believe anybody would want to appear with him. Uh, I mean, and you mean appear with Biden? Yeah, well, appear yeah. with Biden. Well, um, yeah, you know, there's a certain cachet there to the president coming to town, especially among your base for whatever party that is. Yeah, but and, and some of those younger activists who get to see the president, maybe they haven't seen the president before. It motivates them to get out and work and campaign, and so yeah, it's a certain reason for it. Yeah, but you're you're turning off a good portion of of the yeah. electorate, and you know Biden. Uh, I mean, he's had one disaster after another in the last certainly six months, um, and you know he he and Pelosi basically said he's got to have this infrastructure package deal done by the time his plane lands uh, in Europe uh, overnight, and he didn't. Yeah, that didn't happen. And and he said yesterday that, um, you know, th- this was, in order for him, he didn't quite say it this way, but, but this was, for his presidency to be successful, he had to have this passed. It's floundering. He's lost the progressives within his own party. Um and it's I just can't believe McAuliffe would want to appear on the stage with 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 Biden. But well, what's your prediction on uh, infrastructure, build back better bill, one, two or nothing? Uh, I think something happens. I, I, I just I think that uh, because the mainstream media in particular will spin this in the way that uh, Pelosi and Schumer and the president want, um, there will have to be uh, they'll be able to get something done. Um, how much and what it looks like, I think, would probably uh, not rise anywhere close to the level that they want. Uh, but I do think they get something done probably uh, before Thanksgiving. But I don't know about the legislative calendar, you know, whether they have much of an opportunity to do that. But having said that, if AOC and 
I don't know how to pronounce her name, J. Powell. J. Paul. Yeah, that that lady and Ilana Moore and Bernie Sanders and, and and that crowd. If 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 they hang tough, remain in lockstep, maybe it doesn't get passed. Um, and it certainly, I don't think it's passed come January. So I, I think they've got to do this before the end of the year. Um, but you know, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm totally in agreement. If it doesn't happen before the end of the year, it's not going to happen next year. But I, I think, uh, I think in the end, the idea of spending, you know, and that's the crazy thing that the amounts we're talking yeah. about at this point, because you know. It's as if the, the government hasn't spent any money already and they've spent trillions of dollars and they passed $1.9 trillion back in the spring. And then they started at $3.5 trillion, which people pretty quickly figured out was more like $5.2 trillion. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like you know people are losing something. The progressives are losing something if they only, only, only get $1.75 trillion in new spending plus the infrastructure bill, which is another trillion and a half dollars. Yeah, but my prediction is it's too much money, uh, and at some point they come to their senses, you know, as crazy as they are, and go, well, it's still a trillion dollars, <laughs> you know. How do we say no? Well, what's on your radar for the next week? Uh, well, I'm interested in the uh, the president's trip to some extent, um, and, and and what sort of awfulness may come from. The environmental summit where the Chinese are not present because they're interested in building their economy and not uh, not ruining their economy. Um, I, I I think the Rittenhouse trial does it start this week or next? Uh, well, I mean this they, coming week or, or yeah, two this week. coming week it starts this week. Jury selection yeah. is over. That's the case in and excuse me, Wisconsin. Young man is uh, charged with homicide. Uh, after he was there for some riots in Kenosha and shot somebody that was chasing him in the street. With a gun. With a gun. Uh, you know, I, I think that'll be very interesting. I think if there's any, any uh, effort to follow the law, he walks. And then who knows what happens. And uh, and, and that feeds into, I guess, uh, the other sort of major thing that I, that I think is uh, – imminent and important is all this stuff about the vaccine mandates that kick in either this afternoon in the inst- in the case of, I think, New York City uh, or Monday uh, for some other things. If, you know, something like, and I've, I've seen anywhere from a third to 5%, but if 5% of law enforcement is, for lack of uh, a, manda- a vaccine, uh, either fired or, or placed on unpaid leave, and, you know, the Rittenhouse trial goes the way a lot of people expect it to. Are, you know, one, are we going to have a return to late May, early June 2020 with the George Floyd riots? And if we do, and law enforcement and fire departments and EMS and so forth are hamstrung because of the vaccine mandates, what does that look like? Um, yeah. and that's scary. That could be very bad. So that's what right. I'm looking at. What's on your radar? Well, a couple of things. One is since you, since you mentioned the vaccine mandates, there's there's been some press recently about the uh, Air Force because all the services are imposing a vaccine mandate, many of which are spread out over months. Uh, but the Air Force is coming up very rapidly. And although a high percentage of, of service members in the Air Force are vaccinated, 
There are something like 12,000 that have applied for exemptions which have not been processed and which likely will not be granted. And there's a question of what's going to happen with those service members, many of whom are pilots or who perform maintenance functions on aircraft. And what does that do for military readiness? So I think we're going to hear about that very quickly. The other issue I see is that there is this huge caravan moving through Mexico at this point toward the southern border. It's been described as 60,000 people. I don't know if that's accurate. The pictures, though, show a tremendous number of people. Uh, the governor of Texas has now deployed the National Guard to try to protect the uh, the Texas border with Mexico. There was footage just a day or two ago of these uh, you know, members of this caravan, these immigrants pushing through some attempts by the Mexican police to stop them. And it got kind of contentious and violent. And so what's going to happen as they get closer to the border? I think that's yeah. a significant question we'll see very quickly. Yeah, I agree. And then the third thing, which I, I don't know if anything happens over the next week or two or longer, but China just tested this hypersonic missile technology, which is a game changer in terms of national security. Uh, I saw just a couple of days ago that the U.S. has performed a few tests on hypersonic technology, one of which was supposed to happen in June. It was delayed because of the Biden-Putin summit because they didn't want to test it before those two leaders got together. Uh, but, you know, by all accounts in the media, we're well behind China at this point. So it's a significant ongoing issue at the same time that China is making very aggressive moves toward Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And we now have uh, troops in Taiwan training the Taiwanese military. Yeah, it's uh, and the president can't seem to grasp the fact that it has been for a number of decades and remains apparently the policy of this country to uh, help the Taiwanese with respect to defending uh, the, that country against uh, an invasion or an attack by China, but not to get involved. And he keeps saying that we would militarily defend China. And, and you know, we can argue about whether that's good, bad, or indifferent, but the fact that he doesn't seem to, to – I mean, he's done that twice now, and the, and the White House has had to walk it back – uh, is is troubling, and of course, you know, I think it sends entirely uh, the wrong message to the Chinese when he does things like that. You know, they they, they see he's waffling and and doesn't seem to be in control of the facts, and you know, it just makes us look effete. Tense situation. Yes. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can contact us at comments at Let's Think podcast.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe on your podcast provider and leave us a review. 